Now, we've been journeying for quite some time through this letter, trying to see what it argues. It begins, of course, with that awesome exordium, those first four verses that tell us so much of the person and work of Christ. From there, it declares, uh, through seven Old Testament references, at the second half, if you will, of the chapter, it's more than half, but uh, those seven references explains that Christ is greater than the angels. And even that argument begins in that fourth verse, which is still part of the exordium. It says that he has become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance received a more excellent name than they. And then, of course, it goes on to establish that for unto which angel did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he goes on to build that argument. Uh, he said to no angel, uh, you are my son, I shall be to you a father. These sorts of arguments build to say that Christ is greater than the angels. Now, we recognize that, but why does it argue that? Well, we see the, the point of the argument in this chapter, because as he begins these verses, he says that there is a covenant that was mediated by angels, that is the old covenant, and now there is a better covenant mediated by Christ. And in fact, if we think about the theology of it, and we've spoken about this several times, the first covenant, the covenant given at Sinai, was double mediated, angels on the heavenly side. Moses on the earthly side, Moses mediating and taking the received message, which God gave through angels, took it and gave it to the people. But Christ, being fully God and fully man, is able to be the single mediator uh, that we need in this covenant. And so it's a greater covenant. And He is a greater mediator. And that is the entire point. But it's building to this very point, which is to say, if that is the case, then think about this. Because if that old covenant mediated by angels brought with it punishments for those who neglected it, how much more serious will the consequences be for those who ignore this covenant? Who neglect this covenant, which is mediated not by servants, but by God's own Son. Now we've tried several times during this, I don't know, uh, I'm looking here, 16 sermons so far through Hebrews, to establish that the argument here is that servants are great, but a son is of higher esteem. That's established throughout the Scriptures, really. It's established in our understanding. Um, you know, if you were in a, in a royal court hundreds of years ago, you might get away with insulting a servant of the king. Maybe. That's questionable. But you certainly weren't going to get away with insulting the prince. And again, that's just imagery that we can understand to say this principle of a son being of higher esteem is self-evident to us. And so again, this is the message. And he words it this way. The author words it this way. How can we expect to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If those who neglected the Old Testament revelation did not escape without just consequences for their neglecting of it, then how can we expect to escape so great a salvation if we neglect it? And so that is the question. In fact, when you think about this great salvation, how is it, is it uh, given to us in this text? Well, first of all, it was purchased by Christ. That's established in the first chapter. He, in that exordium, by Himself purged our sins. He, in His own body, purged our sins. He accomplished this. And so again, Christ is the, in a sense, purchaser of that great salvation. But then again, as we 
Consider what it goes on to say. He also was the first one to testify to that great salvation, the completed and finished work of it. We spoke about it's not easy to determine exactly when the author has in mind that was, but he makes it clear Christ was the first to proclaim it. So we have that. But these hearers didn't hear it from Christ himself. They heard it from witnesses who heard it from him. Now, that in and of itself should be enough. We heard it from his apostles. But if that isn't enough, he says, but also God co-confirmed it. God co-testified to it. God came alongside and verified the word that they proclaimed. How? Well, look again at verse 4. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. All of this is what we've been looking at over the past several weeks. This is our fourth week in these four verses. It's also our last week in these four verses. But it's important to think about what we looked at. We looked at the fact that the testimony was not received alone, but accompanied powerful signs that verified the word that had been proclaimed to them. We looked at other texts in the New Testament that argue similarly. Paul in the Thessalonian epistle, the first one, he says, we didn't preach to you in words only, right? But in power, demonstrable power of the Holy Spirit, showing you that God was at work and was confirming the very things we were proclaiming. So you weren't left to simply trust Paul or trust Peter or trust John or trust James. God testified along with them through power, through wonders, through signs and wonders, miracles, again, that means works of power, through gifts of the Spirit. So all of these things happen. So what are the key points? There is a danger of drifting away from what has been revealed to us. We spoke about that week one of this section, right? Do not neglect so great a salvation, right? That was our second week. We do not want to neglect this great salvation. Then last week we looked at how God testified and bore witness alongside the proclaimed message of the gospel. But today I want to draw your attention to the closing words of verse 4. I want to read this text again, and I want you to be focused on that last little phrase at the end of verse 4. Therefore we must give them more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Now you can tell that's what we're kind of focusing in on because it's the title of the sermon, it's on the front of your bulletin, etc. We recognize this is what we're focused on, according to His own will. And so we want to think about this today. And I want us to consider three points, and we'll try to be quick this morning. First of all, understanding the phrase. Second of all, understanding the principle. And third, understanding our calling. And that will be in light of what this says. So beginning first with this idea of understanding the phrase, we want to begin by trying to understand what is being qualified in this wording. What is being said here? What is being told to those first hearers who are reading this letter or hearing it proclaimed? 
And what is it saying to us? What does this mean according to His own will? So as we come to this fourth verse, as we just said, it speaks of the co-testimony of God that was given alongside those who proclaimed the gospel message. So again, that's easy for us to understand. Peter goes and proclaims a message. People go, this sounds good, but how do we know? God verifies, vindicates, testifies alongside, however you want to think about this, with signs and miracles, works of wonder. We see this throughout the New Testament, particularly in Acts of the Apostles. And we often call that Acts of the Apostles but because it was the things that they did. But those things that they did that we think of as their great acts were actually empowerments of God, weren't they? When they healed people, God was working through them with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit. So all of that is included in what's being spoken about here. So again, God has testified in this way, confirming the preaching of His own Word through these miracles, these glorious miracles that He's done that have testified to the testimony of the apostles in proclaiming this glorious gospel. If we think about this final verse, or this final phrase, it says, according to His own will. Now, that little phrase causes some difficulties for a couple of reasons, and we want to think about them for a minute. In fact, translators have wrestled with this. Now, the two questions are related to one another, and the first question is, when it says, according to His own will, what does this deal with? What is this uh, signifying? Is it dealing with that entire list of wonders, signs and wonders, which that's two things, but they're almost always put together, signs and wonders. So I would almost think signs and wonders, one, miracles or works of power, two, and then gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, is this, this is three. Does according to His own will regard only that last one, these gifts of the Spirit, or to the entire set of things. If you were here last Sunday and listened, you probably already can figure out where I'm going to go, because I already mentioned that these terms are often used together as kind of a block quote to talk about the workings of God. You find them often together, these things, signs, wonders, and miracles, are often put together along with gifts of the Holy Spirit in such a way that this is shorthand, if you will, for all the things God does miraculously to verify testimony. Is that a New Testament principle? Certainly. Is it found in the Old Testament? Certainly. We see it over and over in the Old Testament where these prophets would come and would do miracles that verified and testified to the authenticity of the message received. And so again, there is a confirming, if you will, of the testimony through these things. Now, One way to read this is that it's only dealing with gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in that case, according to his own will, would actually be referring back to the will of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so we want to think of it this way. If you were to think of the Greek text in that way, it would say something like this. It would say that God co-testified to these things, if you look at your text, with signs and wonders and with various miracles. And also there were gifts given according to the will of the Holy Spirit. Now, most of our English Bibles aren't worded that way, but, for instance, Charles Hodge believed that is the proper interpretation of this text, that it gives a pause there and says those are the things that the Father is doing, and the Holy Spirit is offering gifts according to His own will. Now, we could find scriptures that sound like that. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 shows the idea is biblical. There Paul says, 
but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So again, this gives the idea of the Spirit apportioning out gifts according to His own will. But I need to say that that's not how I take this text, nor how most translators translate it, as you can see in your own text, uh, nor is it the way most commentators see the text. And they word it to say that all this set of miraculous works go together as one set and that this idea of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are apportioned by God the Father. So in that way it would sound just like my text reads it, God also bearing witness with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will, meaning God the Father's own will. Now you could find something similar to that in Galatians 3, 5 where Paul says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? See, the idea there is again, who gave you the Spirit, who apportioned it to you, and the clear reference in Paul in Galatians 3, 5 is that God the Father is the one doing this. So again, um, and there are different translations. I mean, I could quote them, but they all say basically the same thing. Now, the great Scottish theologian John Brown sides with this, as do almost all commentators. He says, according to his own will, this is a direct quote, refers to God, meaning the Father, not the Holy Spirit. Now, is this really a debate of key importance? Well, we need to think about it because it's in the Word of God. We need to think about what the Word of God says. We need to be careful with it. We need to think about it. Um, But we need to also recognize that at the end of the day, even though there are three persons in the triune God, it is one God. It's not as if the will of one of the persons is opposed to the will of another person in the Trinity. right? It is, uh, you can think of it just this way, there is no opposition in will. I believe that the structure of the letter makes it clear to me, I mean, I'm willing to say this, that it is speaking of God the Father. The entire message of chapter 1 rolling into chapter 2 is that God the Father has sent His Son. God is the one who sent Jesus into this world. Christ came freely. It's a a work of the triune God. And even here we see this, right? Because this is the testimony of the gospel, the, the salvation purchased in Christ, so great a salvation, purchased by Christ, first proclaimed by Christ, but now this testimony being verified by God the Father through gifts of the Spirit. This is a triune uh, work, And so again, uh, we can see all this here. But I think it's clear that what he's saying is that God the Father has bore witness that these things are true. Now why is that especially important in the, the logic and theology of Hebrews? Well, these are Hebrew Christians that are thinking about going back to the Old Testament. And so I think he's trying to make the point again, let's go to your own beliefs if you were to do that, right? And let's say you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to the synagogue, they're preaching that there is one God, but not a triune God. That's what they're preaching there. Again, notice even the Father is testifying clearly to the message of the gospel. Clearly to the message of the gospel. So you need to recognize this. There is no clash of wills. There is no presentation from God except this, that Christ is the Savior of mankind. Salvation is found in Him. So great a salvation. If you neglect this message, what will it bring except devastation? 
So again, we've looked at all of that. We've discussed it at length. I don't want to retread too much ground we already have. But we need to think about it. But this brings us to our second point this morning because there is a principle in what the text is proclaiming to us and we need to think about it. So the gospel first is itself a miraculous work. Like that's the background of this. The gospel itself is a miraculous work. Why? Well, what man could purchase their own salvation? What man could redeem himself before God? What man could could purchase, could, could work enough, could do whatever it would take to reconcile himself to God. The, the gospel tells us no mere man could do that. In fact, uh, our text today of our catechism, I love that it even worded it that way, no mere man. Uh, Spurgeon's like, I don't want you to uh, think that Christ couldn't perfectly keep the law, but no mere man could. You couldn't, I couldn't, we couldn't, Christ could. In this same way, what mere man could reconcile himself to a holy and righteous God? None. Christ could reconcile us. He, needed no, he had no need of reconciliation, but he could reconcile us to his Father. And that's what the gospel message is, that Christ has done this. He has done what no man could do, this miraculous work that is itself the gospel. Without His atonement, we would be left without hope. Without His resurrection, we would be left without hope. That is what we've been looking through in the Apostles' Creed as we've walked through week by week. Yet this author is also reminding us that the gospel is likewise miraculous. Not just the purchasing of that message, but the proclamation of the message. The gospel message is proclaimed in power. Whenever it takes root, whenever it it shows fruit, it is a work of God. That's the very thing being told us in these four verses. Even in their own experience, was it preached just simply by men who were clever salesmen? No. It was preached by men who were empowered by the Spirit of God. Empowered by the Spirit of God. We see that clearly in the text. Could this have been accomplished by human means? Could we have found some way to package the gospel in such a way that it would make it more palatable, more enjoyable, more desirable to people? That isn't the argument of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, is it? He's saying we heard it from the men who heard it from Jesus. But you know it's verifiable. You know it's trustworthy because God verified it Himself. In your midst by works of power. Peter says this in his epistles. As we said, Paul says this numerous times in his epistles. Acts demonstrates it regularly in, its, in that letter by Dr. Luke. So again, we see all of this, all of this in practical terms throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament. But here it's clearly being said, you should have believed it because it was demonstrated with works of power, being co-testified to by God Himself. So, Implicit in this argument is that God verifies this. Now, the entire point then is what? This is not something men could on their own do. Right? Just as though we cannot reconcile ourselves to a holy and righteous God as fallen sinners, we cannot verify our own message. If I got up here and we had no collected scriptures, and I began to preach a message telling you it was biblical, how would you check? How would you verify it? In those days before there was a canon of Scripture, a New Testament canon, how would you verify? 
God says, I'll take care of it. I'll verify it. I'll do signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit that will verify the message for you. Now we have the Word of God. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, as a people who come out of the heritage and tradition of the Reformation, we take the Word of God very seriously. When you go back and read of the Reformation, and I've recommended books in the past on this very thing that are very helpful to this, it's amazing when you go back and read as people began to realize the sermons that they were getting on Sunday morning weren't coming from the Word of God, it caused a bit of a rebellion in the church as people said, we don't want your thoughts, priest. Give us the Word of God. And so there are these great moments, I've talked about this often, where the people would cry out from the pews, name your scripture, sir. Name your scripture. And of course, the priests refused to. So, because Henry had ordered an English Bible in the uh, front of every English church, somebody who could read would get up, and they'd go out into the lobby of the church, narthex, whatever you call it, and they would begin to read the Bible. Not preaching, just reading the Bible, and the people would get up and go out of their pews out to hear the word read instead of the thoughts of some man. My friends, why should we care so much about the word of God says it's a privilege to have the revelation of God? You don't have to sit up here and say, is any of this stuff Rick said in the Word? Pick up your Bible and see. That's why I encourage you when I say, open your Bibles, read along. That's why Paul told, uh, commended the Bereans, because they didn't just trust his interpretation. They said, let's get out the scrolls and see if what he's saying is right. Does it correspond to what we've read, to what we have recorded? Again, it's important to recognize this. But these, for that to be true, for that to work, this idea of God confirming this witness, God co-testifying to these things, it's necessary then that these are not signs and wonders that a man could do himself. You have to see these things and say, that is clearly not something Rick could do. In this case, Paul, Peter. I mean, if, if I came up here today and said, I've got a message from God, and uh, I'm going to turn this bottle of water red, and you see me pouring a packet of Kool-Aid in it, you're going to think that's not much of a miracle, right? But the things they were doing was clear. People healed. These were people in your own community, people who couldn't walk, people who couldn't see. You knew this had been the testimony of their entire lives. You had seen them unable to see, unable to speak, unable to walk. And yet now they're healed. In an instant, they're healed. You see, incredible miracles. I mean, again, I would just point you to reading Acts of the Apostles to see pictures of this. But again, these are the very things that are being thought of here, these signs and wonders. This isn't the workings of men. This isn't even good physicians. This is the work of the great physician. This is the work of miracles. This is a work of God. No person could take credit for this. And that's the very point. If a person could take credit for it, then how could it ever point to God's own verification of this testimony? If a man could take credit, if somebody could attribute it to Peter or Paul or James or John, how could it ever be God co-testifying to it? It's necessary that these are things that could not be done by human means. Therefore, it was irrefutable that God was the one co-testifying. And that He's co-testifying that all of this is according to to His own will. Now, that word is indicated strongly, if you will, in the Greek. One scholar wrote this, 
the pronoun his is fronted with the noun will. It is given emphasis by the author. Now, this word is thelesis. It's used only here in the New Testament, he says. He says, as distinguished from thelema, which is the definitive expression of will, it describes an active, if you will, active manifestation of the will of God. In other words, God is actively working out His will in your midst, the author is saying. He's making it clear what His will is by continuing to do these signs and miracles, wonders, works of power, gifts of the Spirit. He is exercising His will amongst you. And so again, uh, the point here is, what excuse will you have now to turn away? None. No excuse. But God is demonstrating His active and emphasized will in just this way. He's directing the church. He's offering the message. He's co-verifying it. He's empowering it. All these things are things that man cannot do apart from God. That's what the author is telling us. Now, as we move to our third point, I want to say something here. The point the author is making here is to establish the greatness of this salvation, the greatness of this covenant, the greatness of Christ, the greatness of the message that you've received that's been verified and and co-testified to, and the utter disaster it will be if you turn from it, and what it will say about whether or not you were ever with us to begin with. So that is the point of the author. But there's something I think, and we've dealt with all of that, but there's something I think we need to think about this morning that I've been thinking about this week, is that implicit in all this is that all of this is a work of God according to His own will. All of this is a work of God according to His own will. And so that brings us to our third point this morning, which is understanding the calling. And I'm closing with this point this morning. If we understand the principle that is implied in this text, that means the work of the church, the testimony of the gospel, is a work of God. It is a work of God. The Scriptures are filled with examples of people who are going their own way in terms of ministry. And this text is telling us that that isn't what's happening here. These are people who are coming and testifying the message that God has given them, the gospel message, first proclaimed through Christ, purchased by Christ. He purged our sins by Himself upon the tree. This same message that is proclaimed there is what they brought faithfully, and God has also testified alongside them to the truth of this message. This tells me God is invested in this message. He invested His own Son in this message. This is a serious message. And He doesn't leave it to the wisdom of men to sell this message. Have you thought about that? He's not saying, uh, now if I can only find some really brilliant preachers who can sell this message, we'll get somewhere. That isn't what's being proclaimed here. These are the same men largely. I mean, Paul had a little more training, but we still got Peter and John and James in this generation. They're very people who earlier were like, uh, who are these uneducated people? Who are these fishermen and so forth? Where did, where did they learn to speak like this? And why is it believable? Well, over and over, their testimony is co-testified to by God through movement of the Holy Spirit, through works of power, through miracles, all of these things. That is what this author is saying. Faithfulness of ministry according to the will of God. But there are also examples, aren't there, in the New Testament of people who are not faithful in their testimony and in their ministry. Those who corrupt the gospel. We could park here and have a long sermon on Judaizers or Gnostics. 
And all of these groups in the church that were corrupting the message and selling their own message that was not verified by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Just messages that sounded good. They sound right by our cultural ears. This Gnosticism is what I was already getting in the Greco-Roman culture. It sounds pretty good, and I hear just enough Christianese in there that it sounds pretty good to me. We might take a a modern-day message like that, the health and wealth gospel, very similar. Sounds good to fallen human ears. So you throw a little Christianese into it, and people go, sell me that, I'll take that. Woke religion today. Another thing just like it. Sounds good to our human ears. Doesn't matter if it's exactly what the gospel proclaims. It sounds close. Our cultural ears like the sound of it. It makes us feel like we're doing something positive. And so we say, give me that. Sell that to me. Give me that message. We see it in the New Testament as well. But none of those messages are co-testified to as the gospel is by God himself. And what of Simon Magus, who said, I know the way that we can have something here. Sell me the Holy Spirit. Sell me the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know exactly what he was thinking here, but I'm sure he had some kind of traveling roadshow idea that he was going to make money along the way doing works of the Spirit. But this is the way a fallen man would think. Oh, sell me this power. If you can lay hands on people and give it to them, you must be... Peter or Paul or James or whomever, you must be in charge of this. Give it also to me. I'll pay you for it. What is said to him, you would not want said to you. My friends, it's important to think about this. Now, is this a New Testament issue alone? No, but I would point this out again. How was Simon Magus in conflict with what's said here? Simon Magus didn't understand the very principle espoused here, that God is the one doing the works according to His own will. Not according to the will of Peter, not according to the will of Paul, not according to the will of Simon the magician, but according to His own will. Well, is this found in the Old Testament? Many places. In fact, you could just broadly say that the problem of the Old Old Testament Israel in terms of religion was they kept seeing sort of a buffet of Near Eastern religions that they could pick and choose from and build their own plate of religion from. And they could say, well, I like some of what I'm getting here uh, from, from Yahwehism, but, but over here, you know, Baal has something to say. And my neighbor sacrificed to him, and he had a great crop last year. So I'll just pull some of that in. They were wiser than God, weren't they? They were wiser than God. Again, you see it in the New Testament over and again where people say, you know what, I think we can, we can work something here in our own wisdom and power and strength that's better than the gospel. It's better than what Peter is selling, Paul is selling. Where do you see an example of that? Well, many places. Much of the problems that are being written about in the New Testament are addressing these sorts of ways of thinking. I'll give you an example. What is the issue in First? Corinthians. Paul at the beginning says there's factions in the church. Why is there factions? Well, what is Paul to begin to deal with immediately? You've divided up on what teacher you like best, who you think sounds the best, the best preacher. You follow Apollos. That was a man, the testimony of Scripture says, was mighty in the Scriptures. May have been the author of our own letter here that we're reading. 
Some say, no, give me Cephas. Give me, give me Peter. I like Peter. I like the way he puts it. Now, there's nothing wrong with preferring a preacher. It's in missing where the power lies. It's not in Apollos. It's not in Cephas. It's not in Paul. It's in God. It's in the message empowered by God, the gospel message. And again, if you follow that whole argument, what does Paul say? I know something about you, Corinthians. I know something about Corinth. Man, you love oration. You love great orders, and you love their arguments. And it's amazing. I've said this to you before, but Corinth had the second most famous games after the Athenian Olympic Games, the Corinthian Isthmus Games, the second most famous, most widely traveled to, the second greatest games in the ancient world. And yet their statues were not of athletes like they were in Athens, although they also, by the way, had some uh, philosophers. They were of orators. Their statues throughout Corinth were of orators. And people paid exorbitant fees to listen to orators. I've spoken about this. There's some interesting evidence that they would uh, hold these devil's advocate forums where you could pay an orator to make any argument you wanted. Why a beard must be at least 10 inches. Or a beard shouldn't be over one inch. Or why a ham sandwich is better than a turkey sandwich. I don't know how popular ham and turkey sandwiches were in those days. But, but those were the kind of things. And, and they would make a brilliant argument. These men were paid because it would be a laughable thing, but they would entertain you with the brilliance of the argument. Today you can imagine why you should only eat at Burger King and not Wendy's or McDonald's. Whatever. Maybe you shouldn't eat at any of them. But... They would make an argument, right, on why the Whopper is the king of the burgers. I mean, it's that kind of silliness. But people paid for this because it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Paul says, I know your culture. I know what you're like. And I know the danger that you're facing of thinking that the power of the gospel is tied to the wisdom of the orator. Do you see that? You're in real danger because of your cultural predispositions to missing where the power lies. Not in Peter, not in Apollos, not in Paul, but in the gospel message as God has empowered it. That's where the the power is, and you're in danger of missing it. Now, there are many places that that this is said, but if you were to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes this clear that the growth in the church and the power of the gospel does not rest on the brilliance of man. In fact, Paul before this says... When I came to you, I did not come with words of wisdom. In fact, he came proclaiming one message and one message alone, Christ and Him crucified. It's like, I don't know what Apollos did. I mean, maybe he did. He doesn't tell us. I don't know what Peter did, but here's what I did. When I came, I did not puff myself up. I did not proclaim that I was more brilliant than you. In fact, I sought none of that stuff. What I did was I came and I preached the word. I preach this simple message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is the gospel except Christ crucified for our sins and risen to glory? And that we can have life in Him if we believe in Him. Paul says, this is all I came to do and all all other strategies are futile. All their strategies are futile because growth in the church does not rest on our own brilliance but on God's power. Where does he say that? 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, through 7, he says this, Who then is Paul? It's almost like, what's the significance of Paul? Who is Apollos but ministers 
through whom you've believed. In other words, what is the importance of Paul? What is the importance of Apollos? Only that they were the instruments that God used to bring you the gospel. That's it. That's it. To think of themselves or ourselves as anything more than that is to miss the point. But ministers through whom you believed as God gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Do you see how this corresponds to what's being said here? Apollos did his job. Paul did his job. I pray I'm doing my job. But none of us give the growth. God gives the growth. God is the one who holds the power. God is the one who is co-testifying and moving in powerful ways according to His own will. Why is that something we need to hear today? I think we live in an age that again is missing this. We live in an age that, that loves great orators, loves great shows, carnivals, and by the way, uh, go to YouTube and, and search out some of these ministries that highlight what's going on in churches today. Literally, it is a circus in many churches. I mean, it's amazing. They have elephants and donkeys, I mean, up on the stage on Sunday mornings sometimes. Carnival settings. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with great music. But it's interesting uh, how this whole thing has happened over time. You know, first kind of contemporary music came into the church. Nothing wrong. We care about the quality of songs. But people were saying, be careful that you're not trying to attract the world by the world. Because it's not going to work. And you're going to have to go further and further and further. So then we began to have heavy metal Christian music and these sorts of things. And now you can go look at this online. Some churches now are just using straight-up secular music. They gather together and they sing Taylor Swift or whatever, literally, as the songs of the worship service. Is that a widespread phenomenon? Not yet. Hold on. It's growing. It's growing. There was a church in Denver. I think it was Denver, Ali, you may remember, that we saw. And they did Leonard Skinner and, I mean, you know, I mean, this is great secular music, right? So people will want to come to church and, and sing these things. But it brings me back to something we've talked about a lot through the years, which is even with our youth ministries, how we have aimed them at entertainment instead of teaching. And I said many times, you can't out Chuck E. Cheese, Chuck E. Cheese. You can try to compete with Chuck E. Cheese, have more and more games, but sooner or later, if you have not convinced people of their need of Jesus, they're going to say, I can just go to Chuck E. Cheese and not have any of the Jesus. Have only fun. And they frankly do the fun better anyway. And that's the truth of it. You're going to have more fun at Chuck E. Cheese than youth group. So again, the question is, why are we competing in that direction in the first place? Let's make sure we make clear that what we're trying to do is teach all people of their need of Jesus, whether they are 80 18 or 8. Let's make sure they recognize their need of Jesus. And then if we do that, we need to recognize that God is the one who grows His church by His own power according to His own will. And that where we've gone wrong through the years is thinking somehow we can be wiser than Him. We'll appropriate more and more of the culture. Well, let's look one more time. 
one more time at the Corinthian letters. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but just think about it for a minute. Paul writes 1 Corinthians. You'd think that settles it. He's made clear you all are going down the wrong path. All these cultural things that you're bringing in from Corinth and bringing them into the gospel are corrupting the gospel, corrupting the message, corrupting the church. There's divisions, there's problems. It's a mess. Surely they go, wow, Paul just set us straight. We got it right now. Let's get on the right path. And yet, what do we find in 2 Corinthians? Has the situation gotten better? I say it's gotten steadfastly worse. What is the entire argument, if you will, writ large of 2 Corinthians? You now have gone to super apostles, right? In other words, before, it was just an argument between which apostle you followed. Now you've said, we've pushed all of those guys aside. Don't give me Apollos. Don't give me Peter. Don't give me Paul. Give me these super apostles. Why are they super apostles? They look more impressive than Paul. They preach more impressive than Paul. And people love the message. People love the message. My friends, who are the super apostles today? Turn on your television. Turn on your television. Andy Stanley, Joel Osteen. Doesn't matter if those messages comport at all to the scriptures. But man, do they preach good. Man, do they sound good. Man, do they put on a show. Church of the Glades in Florida is one of these that pop up on these videos all the time. They've always got a circus going on. I mean, you show up. It's a show. It's, they literally tell you, in two weeks, our next show, blah, blah, blah. They'll throw in a little Jesus here and there. But the question is, where is their trust in what actually promotes the gospel and the work of the church? It's not in the power of God. It's in the show. It's in the circus. It's not in the power of God. It's in the power of pyrotechnics. My friends, if there's anything I pray we would draw from this little phrase at the end, is that the author of Hebrews is telling us, recognize how the gospel is moving, who it is who empowers it, who it is who even gave you the gospel, who it is that empowers the gospel, and he does it according to his own will. The author here is saying, you don't get to choose what gifting you get or what miracle has worked. God chooses it. But implicit in all this is, God is taking an interest in His gospel and moving it out in the way He desires. And our call is to be faithful to Him. So it leaves us with a question. Where do we place our trust? Where do we place our trust in the work we're called to do? Is it in our own brilliance, our own strategy? By the way, nothing wrong with strategy. But is our trust in strategy? Or is it in God?